having been victorious over Nahash the Ammonite, Saul now seeks further confirmation that he is the warring king by seeking territorial hegemony over the Philistines. This is the 27th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our Old Covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel and chapter 13. I'll be reading the entire chapter, chapter 13, all 23 stanzas. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Beloved of the Lord, by inspiration of God, the prophet records this. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the Mount Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin, and the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash, eastward from Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. And Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, therefore said I, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord." I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord had sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. And Samuel arose And got him up from Gilgal unto Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people that were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people that were present with them abode in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned unto the way that leadeth to Ophrah, unto the land of Shual. And another company turned the way to Beth Horon, and another company turned to the way of the border that looketh to the valley of Zeboam, toward the wilderness. Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share, and his coulter, and his axe, and his mattock. 
yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goats. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and Jonathan, his son, there were found. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. John, writing to us in John in chapter 20, John in chapter 20, beginning in verse 26, ending in the next verse 27, by the same spirit, the apostle writes, And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel once again preached unto us this day. Saul has now established himself as the victorious military warrior, which is exactly what the people wanted. They wanted a captain, they wanted a military warrior to go out against the Philistines to bring peace to the nation. And so for the first year of his reign, Saul, wishing to confirm his kingship by going against Nahash, intimidates the people to fight with him. This was only a preview of what type of tyrannical ruler he would become. Capitalizing on the people's fear and cowardice, Saul is able to manipulate Israel in submitting to his will. And that is what tyrants do. Notice the people were still fearful. Even after Samuel had showed them the thunder and the lightning and the majesty of God in his great power and how he moved Saul and orchestrated the fight against Nahash to be victorious for Israel, the people still were faithless. They still were unbelieving. What would it take? They were as sheep scattered because Saul was not a shepherd. He was a tyrant. And this is what tyrants do. They manipulate the people. They terrorize the people. And capitalizing on the people's fear, he sought to control the masses. And if there is no present danger or fearful situation already at play in the community, the tyrant, they are very apt. All tyrants are very apt. Even if there's nothing to fear, they're very apt at creating a scenario of fear and trembling as we have seen throughout much of our history in our own day and throughout history with tyrannical nations. You see, Israel, because of their unbelieving posture before God, because of their faithlessness before God, Israel was ripe for the tyrant. They were ripe for fear as a result of their lack of faith because little faith always results in much fear. While Saul sought to unify Israel through fear, Samuel sought to unify the nation of Israel through repentance, whereby they were then able to defeat their enemies, understanding that God was for them if they would simply obey and fear the Lord and trust Him, they were then able to defeat their enemies and as a result, God would then enlarge their borders. He would then destroy all of the enemies that would come against Israel. He would enlarge their borders and for the rest of the time, Saul would 
enjoy his conquests. It seems, however, that while Saul was enjoying his victory over the Ammonites and his newly declared position as the king of Israel, he was still, after two years, he was still preparing for war. That was his quest. He believed that because he was ordained and commissioned as a warfaring king, he had to continue that scenario. Keep Israel fighting, whether it was the Philistines who they knew were their enemies, or an unseen enemy, as long as he kept them fighting, as long as he kept them in fear that there was some sort of of evil at foot, he could maintain his position as the ruler of Israel. And once again, that's what tyrants do. They are covetous warmongers who seek hegemony. They seek hegemony, a power struggle, a ruler, sovereign rulership over every other nation on earth. They're not content with being a peaceful nation. They want to have hegemony over every nation. And what is interesting about warring tyrants is that if there is no international enemy, they will either manufacture an enemy or declare that some of their own people are enemies, in order to keep up that that scenario. Very often, the tyrannical ruler will declare war against a manufactured enemy, which is unseen, in order to wage war against his own people, or at least, if not to wage war against his own people, at least to manipulate them and control them, because that's what tyrants want. They want control. Very often, this manufactured enemy is... Not an enemy at all, but something that is now popularized. And so after two years, covetous, wicked Saul begins to build his army. We read this in verses 1 and 2. He chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with him, and 1,000 were with his son Jonathan in Gibeah. So Saul is now building a standing army in direct defiance against the law of God according to Deuteronomy 17. This is exactly one of the things Samuel warned Israel about. Saul's insistence on building an army may not have been warranted, not at this point at least, since there was no real apparent threat against Israel by the Philistines or the Amorites. We are reminded of this in chapter 7. Notice in chapter 7, And the men of Israel went out of Mizpeh, and pursued the Philistines, and smote them until they came unto Bethkar. And Samuel took a stone, and set it between Misbe and Shen, and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So, verse 13, the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So there really was no threat. All they needed to do was trust God, because the hand of the Lord would be against the Philistines for Israel all the days of Samuel. But Saul, in order to maintain his standing as the warring king, he's building an army. He kept the people fearful of the Philistines, even though they should have known better and trusted the Lord to subdue the Philistines. Therefore, in order to justify his position, Saul had to maintain a military conflict. This is exactly what he does by the formation of an army. You see, if he could keep the people afraid of the Philistine threat, he could maintain his power position. And so Saul commissions 3,000 men as his soldiers, 2,000 with him, 1,000 with Jonathan. Now the numbers are curious. 
certainly the 3,000 men that Saul put together as his army did not constitute and they could not constitute a significant force against the Philistines if such a conflict were to take place. Too few people. So why the optics? Certainly, as alluded to, it was to keep the people alert, keep them on, on, on guard, on alert, for the purpose of justifying Saul's military position. And this truth is clarified in the literal translation of the phrase, and Saul chose to himself... He chose for himself, not for Israel. This was not about Israel. It was not about protecting the people. It was all about himself. He chose to himself 3,000 men out of the men of Israel. For his own purposes, he's choosing for himself his own army. First, this lends credence to the idea that he was trying to maintain a sense of urgency and legitimacy for his office. Saul was setting up a crisis, a manufactured crisis, in order to maintain his position of power. Secondly, by this time, it also seems that Saul lacked confidence in that if he didn't have an army, the people might begin to think that he was no longer needed. Maybe they, maybe they would say, oh, maybe we'll, we'll, we don't need Saul anymore. Maybe we'll just trust God, because that's really what Samuel wants us to do, trust God. So he's trying to justify his position at this point. In other words, he thought they might begin to say, why do we have you? Why do we need you? If there's no threat of war, we really don't need a warfaring king. But Saul had to keep the roost going. We see this today. We see this today throughout America and throughout the global order. With the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates, the constant threats of a new strain of pandemic viruses, what the CDC says, what Dr. Fauci says, what this one says, what that expert says. Keep the people in fear. Because wicked governments are always ready to weaponize any and every situation for the continuance of control and power. If it is not a pandemic, if it's not a virus or if it's not a flu, then it's ISIS, it's the Taliban, it's Osama bin Laden, it's Saddam Hussein, it's Russia, now it's China. Maybe it's going to be then Hollywood, or maybe it's going to be this thing, or that institution, or the other institution. They'll make it up as they go, as long as we stay fearful. Because that legitimizes the state's protective power for us. Well, these are threats indeed, to some extent. They are magnified in order to frighten the faithless and unbelieving populace. Remember, Israel at this point were fearful. They were not fearless people. They were not fearful warriors. They were men like children. And they were very easily frightened. The third possibility, according to some commentators, is that Saul used these men for his own security. And that seems what this tends to lean itself toward. He chose to himself 3,000 men, 2,000 for himself, and of course he loved Jonathan, so he's going to give 1,000 to Jonathan. And Jonathan, you can use them as they will, but I need, I need 2,000 to protect myself. And this intimates that Saul was unwilling to trust God. He needed an army to protect him. These were the king's guards. And while wicked senators, congressmen, and women seek to disarm America of their God-given right to protect themselves with firearms, they themselves have their own armed personal security, just like Saul. So today we have legislators 
trying to disarm America, just like the Philistines tried to disarm Israel, but to themselves, they have armed security. Nothing new under the sun. There's a fourth possibility, still a fourth possibility. Perhaps Saul was about to initiate a battle which may have actually been part of his plan. The fifth and final possibility, which I believe is the true reason for building this army, is all of the above. Saul's army was a legitimization of his office. It shows that Saul was insecure in his office. The army was his own personal security force, and it was to be used to initiate another conflict with the Philistines so that he could legitimize his power base as king. And so Saul amasses 2,000 of the 3,000 men and gives 1,000 to Jonathan, his son, in order to protect the house of Saul from dissenters and to keep alive the notion that Israel was still in need of a warfaring king like all the nations around them. The Reverend Baxendale adds, he says, This act of Saul must have forcibly reminded the Hebrew nation that they had now indeed gotten what they deserved, a king like all the other nations. And if they had reflected, they would have felt humiliated in contrasting the comparative weakness of even the brave and warlike Saul with the omnipotent strength which they had rejected. But an act of distrust in divine power is always followed by humiliation. And so we see that it was Jonathan, not Saul, who is fearless, who initiates the battle and actually is able to smote the garrison of the Philistines. And once the attack commences, Saul blows the battle. Notice, he's going to take credit for his son's work. He blows the battle, trumpet, in order to show Israel that he still has a legitimate position as king. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines. That was in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now, consider, again, the handicap that this entire army of Israel was facing. Notice verse 19. Now, there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel, because the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. They were afraid of an uprising. This is the ultimate, the confiscation of Israel's weapons of warfare, their self-protection and their national security. That being taken away was the ultimate humiliation. Disarm the people, you make them ripe for one thing, slavery. Slavery and misery. Adam Clark recounts the confiscation of weaponry in various times of history. Notice what he says. It is very likely that in the former wars, the Philistines carried away all the smiths from Israel, as Persenia did in the peace which he granted to the Romans, not permitting any iron to be forged except for the purpose of agriculture. The Chalcedians did the same to the Jews in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. They carried away all the artificers. 2 Kings 24.14, Jeremiah 24.1, And in the same manner did Cyrus treat the Lydians. Take away their defensive weaponry and they become your slaves. This is the mark of pure and unadulterated tyranny and it must be resisted at all costs. This is no longer what some folks call soft tyranny. It is not soft tyranny. It is a move for ultimate tyranny. Whenever people are deprived of personal self-defense, both against wicked individuals and wicked governments, you have tyranny which always results in slavery, misery, and ultimately death. 
Now consider the parallels of weapon confiscation, tyranny, slavery, and genocide. Disarming the people always is the prelude to limitless abuse and it always begins with finding out who owns the weapons. Find out who's got the weapons and you can find out how to get the weapons. In modern history, this of course is done through weapon registration. Once wicked men know who has the means to wage a successful defense against any move to subjugation and slavery, they can then disarm those people, but they have to know who they are. And this is done either through violence or by incremental legislation, as we see throughout history and now blatantly in the United States of America. The strategy also includes the redefinition of who the enemies are. Redefine the enemy and you can then manipulate the situation. Under every tyrannical government, the enemies are defined as anyone that disagrees with the powers that occupy the Leviathan state. And you can rest assured that among those on the list are the Christians. The state needs to eliminate Christianity because they cannot have any competition because they want to be God. And you can't have two gods. No longer are the enemies, those folks out there in the other nations of the world. Ultimately, they are the Christians, the homeschool families, the Republicans, the independents, the libertarians. But why the Christians? Because the true saint understands what's happening around them. Or at least they should. The Church of Jesus Christ should know what is happening around them. They understand what is happening simply because the true saint can discern good from evil. Now that can't be said for a lot of churches today, nor can it be said for a lot of ministers today. But for the true saint, they understand and they are able to discern the difference between darkness and light. It's very, very obvious. They are the light shining in the darkness, exposing, because that's their job, exposing and reproving wickedness and the wicked who perpetuate evil. And that is the one thing that wicked men don't want. They don't want the light to shine upon them. The Leviathan state abhors the light for fear of being exposed for what they really are and what they are doing and what they have planned. They do not want to be shown to be hypocrites and tyrants which is what they are. Remember, the wicked want only one thing, domination and subjugation of all men. Domination and subjugation of all men. Now, at one time in our history, it wasn't as conspicuous as it is today. And the church just kept sleeping and making excuses after excuses after excuses, becoming a pietistic menagerie of people waiting for Jesus. But now that it's in the face of the church and the nation, we're playing catch-up, or at least some of us are. Observe the situation with the two sons of Zebedee and their mother. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshipping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left, in thy kingdom. 
But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They say unto him, We are able. And he said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know, or you should know, but you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they that are great exercise authority upon them. That's the motive of wicked men. To exercise dominion over others. But, Jesus said, it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your ministers, and whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So it's a a character trait of the wicked to seek subjugation of other men. Control is their desire. To be as God and control the outcome of all things. Even if it means genocide. It was the nature of this mother to desire a position of power for her sons so that they would not be subject to the domination by another. And that's the nature of man. They want power so as not to be subjected to another with more power. But according to Jesus, this lust for power is sinful. It's tyrannical. The children of God are called to dominion under God in an agreement with His holy law and not a domination over other men according to the whim of the flesh and the motions of sin. And what has been the norm of late is the failure of the harlot apostate covetous church to take dominion over God. So what do you get when you don't do what God tells you to do? If you don't take dominion, you get domination from those who are saying that they are God and who want to subjugate you to wickedness. Now what makes the matter even more wicked and destructive is that the sinful church has not only failed in their dominion mandate, but they've given more power willingly. They've given more power to the state by agreeing to its legitimacy over all aspects of life, even over worship. And this is why we're in the mess that we're in today. We are looking at the state as sovereign. But the state is not sovereign, it's God who is sovereign. We are witnessing the most aggressive gun confiscation in the history of this nation. They are doing exactly what the Philistines tried to do to Israel. Now, freelance writer Jose Nino, writing for the Mises Institute, compiled these facts. He says this, To maintain its iron grip, the Soviet Union had to turn to the most proven form of suppression, gun confiscation. On December 10, 1918, the Council of People's Commission mandated that Soviet citizens turn in their firearms. Failure to do so led to criminal prosecution. Once World War II came to an end, Eastern European countries took after their Soviet overlords and started implementing gun confiscation as detailed in firearms possession by non-state actors, the question of sovereignty. Several countries stood out during this time period. Bulgaria. Once communists took power in 1944, they confiscated privately owned firearms. East Germany. Private gun ownership was banned, even though the government did allow for agricultural collectives to possess hunting weapons while taking part in government-supervised hunts. Could you imagine government-supervised hunts? Hungary. Communist minister of the interior. 
Laszlo Regif dissolved all pistol and hunting clubs while also dismantling other organizations like the NRA, but that's my commentary, that potentially posed a threat to government power. In 1938, Hitler signed the new Gun Control Act. Now that many enemies, quote-unquote, of the state had been removed from society, some restrictions could be slightly liberated, especially for Nazi Party members, the Philistines. But Jews were prohibited from working in the firearm industries and 22 caliber hollow point ammunition was banned. In some, the Jewish populace was disarmed and had no way of defending themselves against the increasingly militant Nazi political operatives. That's Israel for you. Second Amendment supporters often attribute gun control passage exclusively to Adolf Hitler's government. However, a more thorough review of history demonstrates that the preceding Weimar government was responsible for passing gun registration. Weimar officials rationalized the passage of gun control in the name of public order. Similar to the Nazi case, Castro took advantage of firearm registration lists established by the previous government. Once the dictator, Bastia, was deposed, Castro's tyrannical instincts kicked in. It's no secret that the Venezuelan government had eviscerated property rights and fundamental civil liberties in the crisis-beleaguered country. But how... Has the Venezuelan government been able to stay in power? The Venezuelan government citizen disarmament campaign is often ignored. Abuse of human rights in discussion concerning Venezuela's political crisis. He continues, the Venezuelan government started by passing the original version of the control of arms, munitions and disarmament law. Since then, the law has been modified to broaden the scope of firearms regulated by Venezuelan armed forces, who have the power to register, control, and confiscate firearms. The day of reckoning came when Venezuela banned the sale of firearms and ammo in 2012, very recent, under the guise of fighting crime. Despite the gun ban in place, crime rates continue to skyrocket. Chicago, California, and other places like Detroit and some of the inner cities where guns are outlawed. But then, of course, you know only outlaws then will have guns. He continues, Now Venezuelans have no way of defending themselves against a government that is free to muzzle their speech, expropriate their wealth, debase their currency, and starve them to death. South Africa has recently embraced gun confiscation. According to the citizen, the Constitutional Court of South Africa, that's an oxymoron, ordered the confiscation of about 300,000 firearms on June 7, 2018. To say political tension in South Africa is mounting would be an understatement. Gun rights might not guarantee victory against tyrants, but being deprived of them all but guarantees submission, end quote. Providentially, and only by God's grace, Saul and Jonathan were able to keep certain weaponry for themselves. This emboldened them to wage an assault against the Philistines. Adam Clark says this. He, Jonathan, appears to have taken this garrison of the Philistines by surprise, for his men had no arms for a regular battle or taking the place by storm. This is the first place in which this brave and excellent man appears, a man who bears one of the most amiable characters in the Bible. Now, if the intent of the attack on the Philistines was a move to unite the power in the people in the face of war, it was a brilliant attempt altogether. Because Saul was a master in galvanizing the people to war, and this 
of course, did so. According to the next verse, verse 4, the news traveled very quickly. Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and Israel was also called together after Saul in Gilgal. And the plan here was to gather Israel together. So, you know, the lesson here is very simple. It just takes a few to step up and really lead a people in their defense against tyranny. It only took Jonathan, one man, and his armor bearer to lead the people of Israel to to glory. So the plan was to gather Israel together in such a way as to give them no excuse for engaging in the battle. Now Jonathan, of course, he poked the bear. And once the bear was poked and awakened, the people had to choose, either fight or be overrun by the dreaded Philistines. And, And this says something about Israel at this point. They were not ready for war. They were not really men of war. Ask yourself the question, what are you willing to do for your freedom? Are you ready to go up against a tyrannical Leviathan state? Well, we've seen just recently that not many were. Wonderfully, we've seen many who were. But Israel was not ready for war. They were not skilled in warfare. They were not thinking about warfare. They needed a stimulus. Otherwise, they would have remained, if it wasn't for Jonathan, to lead the way. If it wasn't for Jonathan, to have the courage that God had given him. If it wasn't for that stimulus, they would remain content in their own mindset of security. Even though the, 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 the enemy was plotting against them, they were content in being slaves. Remember, these were the same people that said, well, maybe we'll let Nahash pluck at our right eye and be his slave We won't be able to fight anymore because that's the right dominant eye and we can't shoot the bow without our dominant eye to any skill. So maybe we'll just consider being slaves. That's their mindset. Today you have people here desiring to be slaves because it's too hard to fight. Well, wait until you find out how hard it is to be a slave. The problem with the modern church is complacency. They haven't been ready for the culture war. Oh, they talk about it. They talk about it to the point of vomiting out all of their ideas and ideologies and excuses for being so theologically astute. And yet, they don't understand that the culture war means you take action from the theological foundation that God has given you. So today we find that the modern church is not ready for the culture war. And I think that the modern church has not been ready for the culture war for decades because the culture war has gone out of hand and it's not going in the way that we would want it to go. So obviously we've been a little bit behind the eight ball here. Let us never, never fool ourselves or imagine that the modern church is now somehow ready to defend themselves against the state's overreach. Israel was well satisfied, as long as none of their comforts were taken from them. And what are people doing today? They're sitting home, taking the stimulus checks. They're not looking to get work. They're hanging out. They're saying, oh, I could do this and I could do that and let the government take care of me. Well, wait until the iron hand comes down upon the armor that the Christians thought they had. They're going to find that that armor was cardboard. Israel was well satisfied with their comforts. The real problem is that even when comforts and securities are threatened, sometimes the people still turn a blind eye to the danger. In the case of Israel, they had been stimulated to fight. Jonathan poked the bear and they had to either stand up or be destroyed. And now the battle is in array. 1 Samuel 13 verse 5. 
The Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and the people as the sand which on the sea shore in multitude, and they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from Beth Haven. Now, you've got this incredible army, and now Israel has to respond. They should have responded in faith. But instead of responding in faith, when they see the greatness and Remember, Israel's army, they were, they were these little Jewish guys. The Philistines were these giants. We'll see this when we get to meet Goliath. They were giants. They were big men. Saul was a big man. Remember why they, they liked him being a big man? Because he could stand toe-to-toe with the big men of the Philistines. But now they see these giants in multitude. You think that they would do a David. And when we get to learning about David, he is the most inspiring character of the whole of Scripture. But instead of running and trusting God and running toward the battle, fully faithful that God would deliver them because they trusted God, fear gets hold on them and they tremble like little girls. Some run and hide while others flee to the land of God. It's as if they say, you know, Jonathan, you you fight them off. We're going to run for help. Or maybe we're just going to run. They were not men of faith. They were not men of conviction. They were not men of consistency. They were not men of God. They had no fear of God. They feared man. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. Now verse 8 begins a new thought which gives us some insight as to the previous discussion that Saul and Samuel had in chapter 10. Now remember what Samuel had told Saul, that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him, he would prophesy, he would be turned not into a new man, he would be turned into another man. Redemption was not his. Then Samuel says this, And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal. And this is clear, a clear commandment. Behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to do sacrifices, to a peace offering. Seven days thou shalt tarry till I come. So you wait until I come and I will show you what you have to do. So Samuel clearly tells Saul what he is to do. Wait, wait seven days for Samuel to come in order to perform his priestly duty. You're not a priest He'll perform the duty. You wait. And Saul, Saul waits seven days. He waits seven days, but the people are scattered. Adam Clark explains the situation. Samuel had at this point promised to come to him within seven days, and he kept his word, for we find him there before the day was ended. But as Saul found, he did not come at the beginning of the seventh day. Notice his impatience. He became impatient, took the whole business into his own hands, and acted the parts of the prophet, priest, and king, and thus he attempted a most essential change in the Israelite constitution. In it, the king, the prophet, and the priest are in their nature perfectly distinct. But Saul disobeyed the clear commandment. By being impatient, by not trusting in God, totally disregarding the words of God's man Samuel, Saul decided to step out and do what he was told not to do. How many times do we do what we are clearly told not to do because we think in our own mind's justification that this will be better? 
than obedience. But God looks for obedience, not sacrifice. So what Saul actually does, he self-ordains himself as the legitimate priest which God had not conveyed to him. And while we have already seen hints of Saul's presumption and his tyrannical manipulation of the people, this act is a clear declaration of rebellion against the word of God and the structure of God's legal order. Saul's act was a testimony of his sinfulness and his pride. We see this in the historical context of King Uzziah. After his victory of the Philistines, the scripture states that his heart was lifted up to the point of his own destruction and he felt that he had the right, Uzziah had the right, to function as a priest of God and to make the sacrifice in the temple. And we read this in Second Chronicles 26. But when his heart was lifted up and strong to his destruction, he transgressed. This is what Saul was about. His heart was lifted up unto it, that destruction, and he thought he was strong. So he makes the sacrifice. And as we know, Uzziah, because of his rash act of disobedience, is reproved by Azariah, the priest, the legitimate priest of God, and God smites him with leprosy. And Uzziah the king was a leper unto the day of his death and dwelt in a several house being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. That's what Saul was about to experience. Now what this means for us today is whenever a civil leader, as it was in the case of Saul and Uzziah, takes it upon himself or herself to function as a priest of God by dictating the elements of worship or whether or not a church should be open for worship, they delegitimize their office and their authority as ruler and is subsequently then stripped of his post by God. That is what has happened. So I will tell you this, every governor, every magistrate, anyone who has declared how the church should function in a day of crisis, which is not according to the word of God, has delegitimized their office and they are now no longer, in God's eyes, legitimate office bearers. So what must be our response to such actions as the state's interference with the worship of God? Well, in order to answer that question, we must understand a fundamental principle that has long been forgotten. It is the charge of the church to define the function and limits of every institution that exists in God's universe. We need to start defining what they can and cannot do. We cannot be silent anymore. We have to take our pen. We have to take ourselves to the streets. We have to run candidates that understand what the limits of the state are. We decide. God's word, through our stewardship, through our lips, through our declaration, we decide which institutions are essential and which institutions are not. The Reverend John Murray explains it this way. The church is charged to define the functions of these other institutions and the lines of demarcation by which their spheres are distinguished. The functions and duties of the civil magistrate do come within the scope of the church's proclamation with respect in which the word of God bears upon the proper discharge of these functions and responsibilities. When the civil authority trespasses the limits of its authority, it is the duty of the church to condemn such a violation. 
when the laws are proposed or enacted that are contrary to the word of God, it is the duty of the church in proclamation and in official pronouncement to oppose and condemn them. That's the mark of a true church. We see Samuel following this very line of reasoning when he finally shows up when the seven days are fully completed. Note how Saul justifies himself with the excuse that the people were scattered from him for fear. And it came to pass, this is verse 10, that as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. And Samuel said, what hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the seven days appointed, that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, I'm justifying myself, because I see a situation, and I know better than God, and I'm going to do the thing that you told me not to do, because I know better than God, and I certainly know better than you, Samuel, because you're old, and your sons do not walk in the way of God, and you know what? I really don't like you, because you said a lot of bad things that I would do later on to the Israelites, and yet look at me, how great I am. Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down upon me to Gilgal and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself. It came upon me. I couldn't help myself. I was tempted and I just couldn't help myself. Therefore, I made the burnt offering. Now, of course, I added to the word of God. But this was Saul's test of faith. This was the one thing, after all of his, his mess up, this is the one thing that could have brought him back into the grace of God. Samuel said, if you would have just done this thing, you would have reigned forever. Of course, God knew he wouldn't do it. So he already had David in the wings. This was Saul's test of faith. And he being entirely faithless, proud and presumptuous, he failed miserably to the point of being stripped of his ordination as king. And what he became, at this point was a king in name only. Just like the congressmen, just like the senators, just like the presidents, just like all of the bureaucrats, and just like many of those in the civil office of the local communities. In name only. Not in the eyes of heaven, but in name only. And what really counts is to have legitimacy in the eyes of heaven. Even if men do not recognize it, as long as God recognizes, that is legitimate. Reverend Baxendale again adds this. He says, The first test of faith which Saul had to submit to was a theocratic necessity, and he failed. And he wouldn't get another chance. He continues, he says, For Saul must prove, first prove to the Lord by deeds that he wished to be unconditionally subject to the Lord's will. Underline that phrase. Unconditionally subjected to the Lord's will to yield obedience to his word which was to be revealed to him by the prophet Samuel and to trust alone to his godly help. Now consider the indictment. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. You're a fool. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God even though you thought you did which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Think about the, the, the distress that Saul is hearing these words. You mean if I would have just done this one thing, if I would have done just this one thing, 
The kingdom would have been mine. Well, to a proud man that only wanted the kingdom to be his, this was a great blow to his pride, a great blow to his hubris. Samuel says, not, not yours, sorry. You're done. You are finished. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord had sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. This is now the turning point for Israel. Not only are they facing the dreaded Philistines, not only don't they have any weapons of war, not only are they faithless and fearful, but Saul has now been defrocked as king. Furthermore, Samuel leaves Saul and returns to Gilgal, leaving Saul to fend for himself with an army that is poorly prepared for battle. You don't want to obey God? You're on your own. And that's a lesson for us. If you don't obey God, you are on your own. That is the most fearful thing any human creature made from the dust of the earth with an Adamic nature can ever hear in their life. You are on your own. God will not help you. But that's exactly what Samuel was telling Saul. You're on your own. And you're on your own with an army poorly prepared for any conflict. You see, when we are told by God that we are on our own, our resources are human resources our intellectual resources are nothing to be compared to the sin that dwells in us. We are poorly prepared for battle against sin if we are left on our own. Nevertheless, Saul must deal with the situation because this is what had been presented to him. So, he does what only he could do. He prepares the people for war by numbering the people. We will continue with this situation when we return to the battle and our exposition on the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.